Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready. We're about to live in your head rent-free. Hello, Otterites. This is episode 178. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. All right, gentlemen. Sitting here in uh, Studio F at the Baxter Building, just down the hall from uh, the negative, uh, negative Zone Room, and uh, or no, just down the hall from Reed's Lab. Yes, next door to the uh, next negative door, zone. Next door, yes. Next. And uh, Anonymous is nowhere to be found, thank God. That's right. And Oh, uh, you'd, you'd smell him if he was yes, around. We yes, we would smell him yes. And uh, this is third Friday, so we're going to be doing uh, Our Heroes slash People You Should Know. And as you know, we've been doing Philosophers of late. And uh, this week, or this month, we are doing Immanuel Kant. Last week we did the uh, quotes from Immanuel Kant for Code of Honor, which uh, went very interestingly. Uh, some directions I didn't expect it to go to. But those are ooh, always the best, yeah. Those are the best. They are. And I'll note that these episodes, when possible, are named for lines from the Monty yes. Python Bruce's Philosopher's Song. So officially this episode is Immanuel Kant was a real pissant. Or Immanuel Kant was a real pissant, yeah. if you want to make it right. Yeah. Or Immanuel Kant was a real pissant. There you this go. Sounds very French. But he wasn't French. He was German. German. Yes. yes. He was German, although technically where he was born and buried is in Russia now. So, oh, Konigsberg, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kaliningrad. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Just use the modern Yes, because they the pretty much name. burned all the Germans out of it. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, he's uh, the, one, of the, one of the biggies when it comes to philosophy. And you know, he's... Uh, very much an 18th century guy, just uh, dies four years into the 19th century. So he's, he's very much rooted in the 18th century. And he's comes in a time when um, um, things are, I don't know, just going very, to me, not necessarily strangely, but just some odd ideas are part and parcel of philosophy at this time. And he's trying to navigate between a couple of, competing schools. Uh, you know, he's not necessarily real fond of the empiricists and David Hume, uh, but he's not necessarily real fond of um, uh, some of the... Uh, who's on the other side of that uh, divide? Um, Hobbes? Hobbes, yes, thank yeah. you. I couldn't... blanking there. Had too much bourbon already today. Oh, wow. Have that uh, full stomach from that great lunch we had, and uh, can't think as well as, uh, as I should. So he's trying to weave his way between them, trying to uh, come up with, I guess, a unified theory, for lack of a better term. Very well put. Yes, I think you're exactly right. And uh, before we get into his, his uh, philosophy, though, because that, I think, will probably take a lot of the episode. He, he's, he's hard to get your arms around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, he, I think he's hard, especially for us, because uh, we accept certain things as facts and reality that he questions, which is what a lot of philosophers of his time were doing. Uh, they were basically questioning the foundations of everything. And for us, I don't know whether it's just because of who we are and the education we had at Bellarmine, or it's a, a product of also the time we live in, but there are just certain things that we will accept, uh, to use a good philosophical term, a priori. Oh, very good. Yes, yes I like that. Um, Plus, he was verbose in German, mm -hmm. and he's translated to English from German. Yes. So you're... You know, you're really wading through uh, some tall corn here. Right, right. Yeah, I do find it interesting, though, a lot of the uh, uh, philosophers, a lot of the big names that we've talked through over the years, do have their roots in Germany, yeah. uh, which is very interesting. Uh, one of the things I find most fascinating, I don't necessarily want to go into his biography a whole lot, uh, but one of the things I do find fascinating is he seems to be one of the most well-adjusted, normal guys that is into, that is a philosopher that we have looked at. Yeah. Doesn't go nuts. Doesn't have a thing for a sister. You know, Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, he's, he leads a relatively normal life. He's not severely persecuted. He does have that little bit uh, thing where he was forbidden from um, writing about uh, religion uh, at one point, but then he wrote something else and tried to explain his way out of that. But, I never really like exiled to the continent like we saw with, with say, uh, the the English guys. Right. Uh, you know, Hob Hobbes was was he exiled to the continent? Uh, I, yes, I believe that was yes. Hobbes we discussed. Yes, Hobbes. Yeah, sorry, because yes. Hume was uh, Hume was celebrated. Yeah, now he, yes, yeah, that's it. Hume yes. was a celebrity philosopher, kind of. Well, so was Voltaire. 
uh, you know, yes. in, in France. So well, like, yes, um, and you know, when we say celebrity, that's probably we should point out that that's not of the common man. That's of the intellectual elites. Yeah, because uh, that's one of the things that you know, as you guys know, is one of my criticisms of the Enlightenment, is that it seems to be that it's for the elites, not necessarily the little guy, which I find extremely uh, hypocritical. Mm -hmm. considering oh, yeah. what it's supposed to be about. But he does. He seems to be re relatively well-adjusted. He's got a good job. You know, he teaches. And unlike Nietzsche, they come to his class. Yeah. You know, they, you know, they're not, uh, you know, his students are not, he's fairly popular, both as a writer before he becomes a, a serious philosopher, as well as a, a university professor. Uh, so he's, he's one of the more, uh, like I said, normal, well-adjusted guys, which I find interesting that there's no persecution complex or no cult of personality necessarily uh, around him like there is you know, on Voltaire and, and Hume uh, and, and with that celebrity. And it's not to say that he wasn't popular because he definitely, there were journals dedicated to his, his works mm -hmm. uh, during his lifetime. Uh, but it didn't seem to affect him in the same way that it did somebody like a Voltaire. You know? What are your guys' thoughts on... on his life and how it, well, these things. I, like I said, I find it fascinating. I've always found that, and this comes up just about, if you ever mention Immanuel Kant, you spend much time with him, he was a, if you want to describe him in one small anecdote, we talked about this in the show prep, the fact that he would he would take a, a, a walk every day at a certain time and you could set your watch to the minute, to the minute when his walk would begin and Probably a little OCD. That's correct. Yes. There's no question this guy here was a creature of habit to the point of he's creating the habit because that's how he needs to live life. So you're absolutely right. There's a touch of that OCD in there uh, that we you know would, would have been undiagnosed at the time, of course, right. was unknown. But uh, uh, his doggedness to me is something that stands out about him as a personality-wise. He's not. Because that, that skepticism we talked about in the last episode with him, he has no patience for that, if that's as far as you go. Uh, he's, Kant is going to run all the way to the end. He's going to take something to its logical end. And as he, best as he can. As best he can, uh, argumentative-wise. He's very teleological. That's one of the things, that we haven't used that word much, but he's very much about where does this take us? What is the purpose but the purpose always reaches the end. What is the end? What that that's where everything lies. And he does seem farther down that road than say Locke, mm -hmm. where we were. Uh, as much as I admire Locke and, and admire Hume, Kant seems to take what he's doing and move it towards an end. Right. Because that's what's important to him. Again, the idea that you're not interacting with other people as means to ends. Other people are the ends. Yes. And your relationship and your behavior towards the other people are what is important uh, in a study of morality. Well, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why he enjoyed the relative success that he did. It's because he wasn't pissing people off all the time. And he wasn't a, a total douchebag to them. Like well, yeah. many of the guys we've talked about have been. Well, yeah, because when you think teleologically... You're not thinking about what's just at the end of your nose. You're thinking about what's going on 30 years from now. So, uh, I'm sure because they're our listeners, yeah. they're going to know. But just on the off chance... I did define that, but I'll redefine it yeah, again. Let's just make sure it we get that down there. So teleological that... means thinking about the end. Mm -hmm. What is the logical what... end? What is the purpose which means to the ends? That's what teleos means, is right. the ending. So, you're going to recognize that a, a teleological person, when you, when you speak in the arena of relationships... I'm not going to piss off this person today even though they have made me mad because tomorrow or next week or next year or on my deathbed, I might need them to be nice to me. So, therefore, a teleological person is constantly thinking about far more many, if you think of it as a chessboard, far many possible permutations. Okay, so that's an interesting way to put that because that implies, though, that... Something which I which you probably don't mean to ascribe to him, because it sounds like well I may need him later. I may be no, able to make that, that, use was of him later. that was an example. I do not need to subscribe ascribe that to him. Right, but, but that's he, what I'm saying. It's probably a poor example. Let's not. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, he certainly would 
would not be a utilitarian. No, that's, that's, right. that's correct. And, that's, which we, we despise. I think we can, I can say for that all one's we coming. despise give that. Us a, give us a couple. I think it's two months from now. And we will we will hang John Stuart Mill in effigy like we've been threatening to for two years now. Well, you know, we can always have a party and, and do him and Wilson and, you know, probably throw a few others into the, the mix. Oh, okay. how wide, how big of a pot do we have to cook that? I say, yeah. do we think we can get piñatas shaped like uh, John Stuart Mill's head? I'm or sure that you can Wilson's get, head? I'm sure you can get just about anything nowadays. It might be a custom order on the internet, but... Right, but I'm sure you can get it ordered. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... So yeah, so uh, he's he's relatively successful, which gives him a platform from which to publish. Right. And he's very prolific again. And he is very prolific. Kind of a, a, he lived almost eighty years, so he's got a lot yeah, of so time. He's got a fifty-year writing career here. Yeah, and yeah, which is a phenomenally long time uh, to be to be a influential thinker, which is great. And uh, he's very much uh, a. Not a, I don't know how you would use the, the, the term to make it into a label, but reason is his, uh, lack of a better term, his God. You know, it's all about reason, what you can think your way to. Um, and that's probably not the, necessarily the best way to explain it, because as we talked about in the last episode with in respect to Martin's skepticism quote, it's not just about thinking, uh, it's about the understanding. Right. Uh, which is very much the teleological aspect, you know, because the why and the how uh, take you to the end. Right. Yeah, there is no end without those questions. Correct. Right? Everything Correct. else is just, it, it's simple existence. And for him, that was abhorrent. You know, Correct. Uh, yeah. Existence for its own sake. In fact, well, he, and, he even denies it. And in that case, I would, I would agree with that, that simple existence without reason or meaning, which is the why and the how, yeah. is abhorrent. Yeah, because uh, to me that's like sleepwalking your way through life. You know, that's you know coming home and, and not to say that anybody who does this is they're wrong. It's just for me, you know, coming home, opening up a six pack, and watching TV until it's time to go to bed is just the most awful thing I could think of as a way to live my life. That's right, and, and a lot of that is in teleology is always time based. It has to be yes, and in a linear fashion because that's the only way it works for us. So. It's and, and it, I'm very glad you phrased the way you did because coming home and having a six pack um, and and watching television and vegging out by itself, simp as the simple act one you know outside of time, is morally neutral. Yes, but once you apply it over time, it becomes downright sinful. One could it, argue. Yes, once it becomes your uh, standard modus operandi. Yeah. Then yeah, it, it borders on the simple. once it becomes teleological. Once yeah. it, that's your goal. That, that, that's yeah, um, uh, that's exactly it. And that's that's Kant. Well, and and I think yeah, because you know one of his quotes we talked about, we didn't use it, but one of the quotes we talked about was that was about how the human being is never the means; he is the end. So you know, we're right. talking about something as a means to an end. Uh, meaning you can do evil to do good, that which is we would reject entirely. And I believe he would too. Yes. Uh, because, again, when you talk about doing evil, it's almost always screwing somebody over for your own selfish needs. Yes. And, and he it, would reject that. And, and, and it's you're in the right direction because what makes him kind of still this landmark guy is this concept of the categorical imperative. Thank you. I was yes. wanting to get there. So Preach it, brother. Preach again, it. Again, he, he's, he's working through tons of things, as other Enlightenment figures are. Anthropology, mathematics, yes. uh, the the nature of existence, the nature of knowledge, all this thing. What he becomes, though, is an ethicist. Yes, yes, you know, he's ethics, very big in that. Yes, the, a moral system. He's looking for the scaffolding to build a moral system, and when you talk about taking things to their conclusions, um, the very famous example is. You know, every lie is destructive. Therefore, it is a categorical imperative to always tell the truth. That is your duty as a human. Yes. Uh, one and, of the quotes that uh, I almost used is very tied to this. Yes. And that is that act only according to the maxim whereby you can, at the same time, will that it should become a universal law. 
Yes. Meaning, yeah. if what you do doesn't apply for everybody, you shouldn't do it. Right, right. And that's, that is his concept Although, of, of duty. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, and what you're building, the, the moral foundation is not necessarily theological. It's your moral foundation is a duty to others. So, of course, the the example becomes, okay, Anne Frank is in your attic. The SS is knocking at the door. What do you do? You know, in, in a Kantian system of ethics, the categorical imperative is to tell the truth. So when the SS officer says, are there any Jews in your attic? You have no other option but to say, yes, they're up there. Are there any women here today? <laughs> so, no, no, so, I thought we'd start you know, so, so that's the, you know, that's that became then the way to puncture Kant. Uh, is to then take that notion of the categorical imperative to this level. This, ex, you know, this can you tell a lie to do a greater good of protecting someone from destruction by this, you know, ideology? Right. Of course, that all of that kind of thing is alien to Kant's experience. He can't fathom that anyway. Right, uh, which suggests years too early. You yeah. know, he may have been somewhere on the what we uh, I don't know if they still call it the spectrum uh, as far as autism because that is often something that uh, uh, is difficult to understand. My, my son is not on the spectrum recording because we had him tested just like Sheldon, yes. uh, and he's normal uh, and literally came back basically you know, basic kid. But anyways. He often has he often struggles with some of these concepts, you know. It's like the whole elevator thing I've told you guys about. Yeah. But he often struggles with the idea. Well, why wouldn't you tell the truth? Well, when the truth is harmful to somebody, then that's not a good thing. Right. And exactly. just because somebody's fat doesn't mean you have to tell them they're fat. Yeah. And, or stupid. <laughs> and, and, and that again, that I get that. The, how can the truth be harmful? But Kant never faced, you know, an, an ideology that destroyed everything in the past. True. Uh, you know, so, the church has this thing called mental reservation and how you would answer that question. You have to be very careful in how you answer the question to not also be lying at the same time, which, you know, takes some very big mental gymnastics. You might say, well, that's just, you know, you're cheating. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, maybe, but which is the greater evil? Turning over the Jews in your attic? Or saying, hmm, I don't know if there are Jews in my attic right now. Because hmm. I'm not up there. You know, it's, I mean, however you would phrase that. Because yeah. uh, that is, you're right. That's, I remember that question in many classes. Right. That I mean, that's, that's the classic Kantian dilemma of just, just what are the limits of the truth? What, you know, right. Is truth can, absolute or not? Can you tell a lie to do a greater good? And at some point, you know, what good does it do to tell the lie? I mean, you can tell the SS officer, no, there's no one in the attic. He's probably going to go look anyway. Right. Uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, when the SS officer goes to the farm yes. and they're having the conversation and, you know, they start out in French and he says, do you speak English? I need to practice my English. And so the farmer says, yes. And so they're having this conversation, and it becomes a, well, what if, if there were any Jews here, where would they be? And, you know, of course, the guy, because he doesn't want to get his wife and his kids murdered, he points to the floor where they be. And of course, then they come in and they shoot up the floor, and uh, the one girl gets away. Uh, which, you know, incredibly good movie, even though it's such a weird movie. Because, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, but yes. Glorious Bastards is, is, is such a great movie. <laughs> anyway, sorry. But that's the same kind of thing. You know, how do you how do you do that? Because you're right. They're going to check the attic. If they're asking about the attic, they're going to check the attic. Yeah. And if you say no, you're going there with them. But is that your moral obligation to go with them? Because once you have decided to shelter them, aren't you sharing their fate? Yeah. So at a point, you know, Con I mean, you're going there anyway. It doesn't matter what them. you reply. You might as well. To Con's credit, you might as well say yes. Right, because you're going with them. Yeah. Because you were sheltering them. Yeah, sure. Yeah, they are. Go ahead. Go take a look. Yeah. So, but again, is that cooperation with evil? 
You know, so it's it's a one of those things that I'm glad I'm not the moral theologian that has to wrestle with that question, indeed, uh, or the moral philosopher. So that's that's the categorical imperative, uh, and again, that's that that became um, what most of everything we understand about him got hung off of. Um, but he had a very prolific, and and I wanted to make sure, Robert. I hope I'm not jumping ahead on you, but. There was also a period of time uh, where he's, again, diving into anthropology, sort mm-hmm. of. And, um, well, he's, you know, a bit of a racist. I had not uh, gotten there with, actually, with uh, what I would be bringing up. But, yes, that does not surprise me so, uh, because of the age that he lives in. Yeah, so, I mean, it's very much uh, white Europeans are awesome. Um, everybody else, we should be taking pretty much a paternalistic attitude towards because they're not going to get where we are. Um, but to his credit, as he went on in life, um, his last one of his last works, uh, Perpetual Peace, he backtracks quite a bit on all of these views. Well, you know, even having that view would be a radical view for the time. Uh, Very much know, so. That, that a paternalistic attitude should even be taken as opposed to either ignoring or wiping them out. Yeah, I mean, very much it was, well, you know, the, the, the natives of the Americas are just, forget it, they're just savages. Right. Um, and, you know, according yeah. to European society, they were. Yeah. Doesn't mean that they were necessarily savage in, in all ways, the way we think of savage, but how they defined the word, yeah. 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 So. Just beyond civilizing in any way. Yes. Which is in itself is probably patently false because, you know, you, you especially the younger you get them, the more likely you are to change them. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, yeah, so he, you're right. He is very much, he's also a Renaissance man uh, in the sense that he is into so much. Yeah. Uh, and because he has that long career at university, he can, and I guess basically back then, they didn't really have classes the way we think of them. You know, you, you took a class from somebody, and it might be called whatever, uh, but that doesn't mean he's going to actually talk about just that main subject. It, you know, things weren't quite as defined. You were probably taking the professor more than the class. Uh, yes, that's exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's going to be you know, going and listening to him talk. Yes. That's they might have called it rhetoric or whatever. Yeah, natural philosophy it. can cover a yeah. huge amount of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Let's talk about this whole idea about reason. Why is what what makes reason so appealing to him? Well, again, he is in an age where Christianity has fractured. Yes. So, and very violently. Yeah. So you're starting from a premise that, well, if it's going to fracture and we're going to live with that then, like with Hume, nobody can really claim to be right. Legitimately. Yeah, because they all claim to be right. Right. If one side is right, then all these other ones have to be wrong. So, how do we then build a system for living together without this basis of one of these theologies has to be absolute? So, he's looking... Spoken like a Protestant... Yeah. <laughs> so he's looking to reason as that scaffolding for his ethics. Yes, and he does come from the German Lutheran tradition. Yeah. Very much so. He's not, uh, I mean, there are Catholic Germans, those are Bavarians, generally speaking. Uh, he is definitely a uh, uh, from the Lutheran tradition. And uh, so, you know, like anybody in any age, especially then, that background formed your morale. We talked about this in the last episode. He cannot escape. The, the, not necessarily the trappings, but the foundation of morality that is the Christian tradition that he comes out of. Even though he tries mightily, he still ends up in a similar place, uh, which I find interesting. Mm-hmm. Because to me, that speaks to the universality of what he's trying to, not necessarily reject, but uh, you know, for him, if he can't reason his way to it, you know, he's, he's of the mind that you cannot prove that God exists empirically. Right. Uh, but you cannot empirically prove that he does not exist either. Therefore, he probably doesn't really care which one you believe in because you can choose 
to believe or not believe, which in itself is a radical idea for the time. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're right, it's very much a modern um, uh, belief today. Although many today who don't believe in God would say you shouldn't believe in God either, so it's kind of... Well, that's the Dawkins of the world. Yeah. He's very, he much, uh, Hitchens was very similar with that, too. He, he thought... Re, uh, A uh, lot of atheists bad are like that, was, though. Yeah, it's... Uh, Not all, obviously. Hitchens was much Some more, just don't give a damn. Yeah, Hitchens was much more moderate, and he recognized, I want to believe that there is no God, and I want you to leave me alone when I do it. I mean, if you read his book, God is Not Great, he sees... Stay set unequivocally. He said, "My problem is nobody will leave me alone." And he said, "Because he was." See, I find that hard to believe. Well, he because was, in this day and age, who doesn't leave you alone? Well, so for whatever reason, and I think this might be his acerbity. Although he uh, Dawkins is far more so than he is, but I think that's just because of where we've come. Uh, Hitchens was one that he was very clear about his atheism, and it was like ringing the dinner bell for the great white sharks of the fundamentalists. They came after him in droves. They they wouldn't leave him alone, uh, and it was kind of, and he was you know he was not one to be messed around with because he well in that case I would say well then why don't you leave them alone because that's what I find of most modern you, atheists if they won't leave me alone so why should I leave them alone well I mean he kind of like Thomas More would say you know I write that's all that matters that's what happens he kept writing uh, and that's that's all they needed ah but I don't care who the writer is yeah they're writing to be read. Ultimately. Oh yeah. That's, well, I mean, he had a publisher, and he was, he was well, you know. Well, right. But I mean, you don't. I mean, obviously, if you write, you know, you're gonna because of the amount of time it takes, you're gonna want to get published because you want some kind of remuneration. And, for and it. his and his books were very popular in many ways. Yeah, and he, um, was, he, he had a huge speaking career, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean that his atheism and his intellectualism, which were part and parcel of the same thing, were his identity in many ways, as far as the public was concerned. So yeah, they keep coming after him. So what else is he gonna say? That was a, that was his argument. Is you know he can't he can't be a vocal atheist in this country in this time period and be unmolested, which again is very much one of those uh, enlightenment hypocrisies that I see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that so you get to be as vocal as you want. Yeah, assaulting and, and uh, 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 skewering skewering. Anybody that doesn't agree with you, and they're supposed to accept it, yeah, because you're so wonderful. Yeah, everybody else shut up. Yeah. Well, read if you read Hitchens, he makes some really good arguments that he's doing what they've been doing all along. It's just he's treated differently than they are for it. Uh, the really? Readers, yeah, I know. It's, that, that's his uh, argument. Yeah. He's a crybaby. And he uh, assumed much, yeah. room temperature some time ago. So uh, the late Christopher Hitchens. Yes. Well. Uh, so, but reason for him, uh, for Kant, back to the subject of the, this episode, uh, is not necessarily a thing to be worshipped, but it is a process for him, which is supposed to be. Reason is supposed to be a, it is a pro- should be a process, because if you say, well, you know, uh, my reason is this, what you really mean is my opinion. You know? Well, that's correct. Well, I mean, it's just teleological. He's thinking, you know, it's, you're moving down the continuum. Right. So... You know, if I use my reason, uh, a la Augustine and Aquinas, to come to believe that there is a God, then, you know, that's my, re- you know, and, and using my experience and reason, because for him they are tied together, uh, then that should be uh, all right. But whereas some, I think, in his day and age, especially uh, surprisingly for that age, uh, would not be okay with that. Uh, that you know, again, if you don't come to my opinion, uh, you are wrong. Uh, Sorry, which, I shall smite you. Which is one of the things that you know. I may not agree with everything he says. I, I my sense is, because yeah, I'm not. No, nobody here in this room has read all of his works. That that's an easy guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he seems to be far more willing to let you come to your own uh, ends than. Most of the Enlightenment philosophers. That's true. Yeah, he is very egalitarian in many ways. Uh, he wants you. He wants you to work things out for yourself, uh, because he's. Uh, he, and the reason being is not to use the pun, but I will, mm-hmm. is that each reason has a. In order for it to be meaningful, it has to come from within. He wouldn't use that words, but that's what we're talking about here. There's a subjective quality. Well, you can't just be told something. Yeah, he rejects that whole process. Right. Yeah, I mean it's that's it, dogmatic to him. He doesn't he doesn't want anything to do with that. Yes, uh, and you know, 
there, there's certainly nothing wrong with, uh, even from a Catholic perspective, trying to reason your way to understanding uh, the Church's particular dogmas. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, to me, again, I understand this is one of the hard, hard things for a lot of converts to understand because we, we tend to be um, so zealots as well. This is true of any convert, not just mm-hmm. Catholic yes. converts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to remember that, you know, it's okay if somebody else doesn't hold the same thinking about the beliefs that you hold. So, for instance, you know, I need to reason my way to understand, because I need to understand the beliefs in a very Kantian fashion. Right. Uh, for me to be able to, to fully live them, to fully, because if I believe they're true, I want to understand why they're true. And, you know, for him, it would probably be, I can't believe they're true until I understand right. why they're true. So, you know, we come at it from two different angles, but essentially it's the same thing. You know, the understanding is important. And I think that's one of the things that uh, sets him apart from many of his contemporaries that we've talked about. Amen to that, sir. 30 minutes in. Wow, already? What do you think, Francis? Oh, you're the captain. No, he's not. Oh, no, no right. not. No, you're not. Sorry. I'm the captain. I already had too much then. What do you think? I'm the captain. I will, we will have bourbon break. When I say we will have bourbon break. Hey, you know what? We're 30 minutes in. Why don't we do a bourbon break? I think it sounds just fine. <laughs> well, uh, well done, sir. Well done. Thank you. You did very well with that. That's, that's exactly what I was hoping you would do. So, um, now, did all three of us do this, or are you sticking... No, no, no. I'm, I'm stepping aside and let you all talk. Okay. Uh, go right ahead. So... Uh, Martin, in the last couple of episodes, has talked about uh, uh, doing a mix of his bourbon with uh, ginger ale. And up to this point, you have used Canada Dry, I presume. Yes. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm stealing from this commercial of yes. the, the bourbon and ginger highball yes. style drink. Uh, you know. So, uh, yes, I poured a, an ounce or so of, what was it called? Old Bardstown? Old Bardstown. Yeah, the Old Bardstown. Old Bardstown bourbon. And, this is fine bourbon. We've had it. Yep. Uh, three or four ounces of the Verner's ginger soda, which yes. makes very, very balanced. A uh, yes. little nice, uh, not too sweet, but not too bourbony uh, little cocktail here. Yes, you get a nice um, after effect. Because the, the, so for those of you who, who've never had Verner's, uh, if, you know, it is very much out of Michigan. I don't know how well it has penetrated the rest of the country. Uh, but I know down here in Kentucky, it was hard to get for a long time. Uh, it's, it's still a, not the easiest thing yeah, to find. Yeah, it's, it's a Midwestern phenomenon. It does not have the market penetration <coughs> of uh, Canada Dry Ginger Ale. Uh, or any of the other ginger ales. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, And it isn't advertised as a ginger ale. It's a ginger soda. Yes, but we still all call it ginger ale. Uh, and uh, it is... Uh, definitely a, a stronger version of a ginger ale, a ginger drink, than Canada Draw. Very candy flavored. Almost. Yeah, yeah, it is very sweet. It is. It, it doesn't have quite the bubbliness, I don't think. Oh, I, I think it does. And I may be wrong on that. That maybe. Yeah, I think now if well, you, it does, I'm just thinking uh, Canada Draw is sometimes overpoweringly effervescent, and I don't like that. Uh, it, well, maybe it's just because I'm used to uh, drinking my Canada Dry so quickly. But I mean, to me, Canada Dry, or I mean, uh, gin, uh, Verner's is one of those things that there's a ton of effervescence when you, when well, you yeah, first pour yeah, your drink. You can't do just, a ginger ginger ale or ginger drink without that. Yeah. But anyways, we have uh, taken the, the, the Canada or the uh, the Verner's and poured it over the, the Old Bardstown to make this version of a, a highball. Uh, yeah. And it... I find that it is, uh, it's a great blend of flavors. Uh, not normally a mixing... Yeah, and, of, and normally we I don't know. do a cocktail. We're just doing bourbon for the bourbon break. But, right. Right. But, but uh, uh, you do get the bourbon for flavor. A, yeah, for a little after-lunch cocktail here, the highball is working. All right, which, you know, it, it's a good... Because the Verner's has its own bite. Yes, uh, indeed it does. You know, similar to how we talk about the bourbon. Uh, it's obviously not from being having a char or a, or a uh, uh, high alcohol content, but it does have that uh, that bit of a uh, bite to it, and that mix with the bourbon is a very I like it. It's a it's a good blend. Well, yeah. Mar- Martin brought a whole two liter, and it's almost gone. So, uh, well, we had quite a bit at lunch. Yeah. Yes, yes. With with even without the bourbon, we we had some. And again, breaking our usual rule about no sweet drinks. 
But for a treat. I'm yes. Brought the burners over to have with lunch. Yes, I don't know if I said it during the episode, but I know I talked about it uh, in between. I do not consider Verner's a soft drink, so it does not break my <laughs> no soft drinks rule. Okay. Uh, well, to me, a soft drink is, you know, Coke and Pepsi. That That's, yeah. you know, yes, I also include Sprite and, and seven of those kinds yeah. of things. But, you know, Verner's and, and the Fago, they really are categories unto themselves, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so... It's so that's the Michigander. In yeah, I mean, it's super, super sweet. So, I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. But if you're sick, you know, knock that crap right out of you. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, if you can find Verner's in your store, grab some, because it is fun. It tastes like candy, and um, it's, it's good ginger soda. It, 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 really it works is. really nice for a highball. It really does. But I think next episode, we got to return to regular bourbon. Oh yeah, well we're we're pretty much out of the Verners, so we kind of have to yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like you know we'll because yes. I have some more of, of Francis's stash to get into. That's right, we do. We do. Oh yeah, there's a couple we haven't even cracked yet. So. Yes, because you have built up a nice little uh, kitty. Uh, yeah. Kitty. Yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, yes, all, I guess for a while there, uh, I was the only one that had a, a large variety. Not a large, but a, a decent variety. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. we have all. Yeah, uh, yeah, all three of us are, are seven, eight bottles now, right yeah. now, in, in various stages. I've got a. An unopened one I'm saving for our next time uh, at Studio M. Um, Which will be in November. Yeah, Rebel 100. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. I've heard about it and seen it haven't tried it from, yet. From Lux Row uh, Distillers in, in Barstown. So that'll be uh, that'll be a newbie for us when we get there. Looking forward to that. So, And we tried a newbie uh, today in another episode. We talked about this Yellowstone. Which is very good. Which yep. is a huge winner. It's yes. absolutely killer. Uh, Absolutely. It's awesome. Yep. So, yep. I love it when a plan comes together, boys. So, Immanuel Kant. Yes. Was a real pissant. Who was very rarely stable. But honestly, I think he was. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, what I find interesting is how he writes about philo- uh, uh, moral philosophy. How you know He talks about morality, but using reason to get there. Now, I'm not, again, we've not read all the works, so it's really, really difficult. Yeah, and, and again, we emphasize this is, he's he's difficult to get your arms around. Yes, it is a categorical imperative of ours that you should read this yourself. Nice. It's categorically imperative. Some of this stuff's 800 pages, and again, translated, it's verbose in German. Yeah, 18th century German at that. Yes. Yeah. So. And then, you know, translated to English is, is monster. Right. Uh, and, you know, the tra- English translations are probably not modern ones either. Yeah. So. Well, it depends on, you know, he's constantly being retranslated because every generation or so, it's like so many of those works written yeah. in other languages. Yeah, it needs to be. Yeah. The, the thing that I'm finding very appealing, and again, we'll get that John Stuart Mill pinata out in a couple of months, but even before Mill, he is very strongly anti-utilitarian. Yes. You have a value, a dignity, beyond your utility in society. That's right. Which is a step past even where Locke and Hume were, you know, even though they were very much uh, moving in the direction of egality, uh, you know, egalitarian fraternal liberty yeah. for all. Liberty, egalitarian, fraternal. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, were, they were moving in that direction. You know, because they they're very much uh, standing against that um, Hobbesian authoritarian authoritarian so. autocrat. Yeah, you know, everybody can vote, everybody can have value. He's taken that and solidified it, made it a little more concrete, which, than even beyond <clears throat> what Hume could do. Which I find fascinating, precisely because honestly, if I were to my first instinct, that doesn't mean necessarily where I would end up, my first instinct with the whole idea of as reason and thinking as your, uh, an experience as your basis for your, uh, you know, your philosophical underpinnings, your morale, uh, morality and your moral underpinnings, I think you would end, I think most people would end up on a utilitarian side because you would end up with, well, you know, if it's, what's the point of that? It, it would be one way to say it would be a utilitarian uh, idea, mm-hmm. uh, and he definitely does not get there, you know, because how do you use reason to argue either for or against whether or not something is beautiful? 
because to me that is totally subjective. Mm -hmm. And in a utilitarian society, beauty really has very little to do with anything. Right. Right. And yet, that's one of the things he talks about: is that nature, beauty, you know, nature uh, has beauty because it reflects art, which I think is odd because right. I would put it the other way. And a utilitarian art would not be for the beauty of the image; it'd be for it, what it would do. It'd it would be, be for the, the propaganda. Yes, exactly. Right, the propaganda value of the image itself. Right. If what, there's any beauty, it's in how well it does that. Yes. That's where beauty is in a utilitarian, is how well something performs its function. Right, and that's, Kant is strongly rejecting that idea. And I find that fascinating then that that essentially lays on top of then where you would get to with a faith-based moral structure. Right. So it's kind of like, in the end, dude, what's your point? Aquinas said all this already. Yeah. In many ways, you're very correct. Uh, Aquinas is the modern uh, father of reason. You know, people will say it's Kant, but it's Aquinas because he's the one who reintroduced a lot of the concepts that all the philosophical philosophers yeah, yeah. after. If you want to go back further, it's Aristotle before him too, though. So well, you know, he, yeah, but that was all gone for a thousand years, and that's my point: is that he, re er, er, Aquinas, reintroduced all of that, correct, uh, and made it part and parcel of thought going forward. That's why I, I go to a, yeah. Aquinas and then, as opposed and that is to why, Yeah, and that's why I would be there as well. Again, <clears throat> but there, Augustine, Augustine thought is what it is. It's awesome and important. Uh, but Aquinas is kind of that modern starting point. Yes. That, that, that first brick you put in the house. And so it's like... Hey, uh, hey, Kant, it was nice to know you. You got some interesting stuff here, but I'm going to punch you out the window and just go back to Aquinas. <laughs> there, I love it. I love there, it. I guess that's the question here. Is there any real point to Kantian yes. ethics? I, I think there is, if for no other reason than this. Uh, he claims, even though I think he's not really, he claims to come at it from a purely intellectual form of reasoning that there he's not uh using any kind of faith or religion as a starting point even though he kind of is he is a product of the culture we are all products of the culture right. yeah, I mean, he race. is a product of a judeo-christian culture even and one that is a is much stronger judeo-christian culture than the one we live in right so even though he's trying to say all right, because we can't know God, there's no reason to start a theological uh, scaffolding around that. Let's start it around our duty to each other. But the whole duty to each other ends up in the same place well, because it's... you have to then come from the inherent dignity of the human person, which well, is yeah, you well, know, unless you go words. down the canals of utilitarianism. Which well, is yes, what exactly. Bill does in yes. utilitarianism. There is no duty to one another. No, no. Well, there's there's only a duty to society. Well, and even that is, and and that's much more of a nebulous thing. Even the duty yeah. to society is is just to to be the most. To be the most efficient and effective with what you have with you. And not you. impinge upon the freedom of others to do as they will. That's for you for Mill, for utilitarianism. That's yeah. where that that's where that goes. Right. And that's, that's a, not where Kant would be at well, all. Yeah, because in, in well, because for, for duty, Kant, for for Kant, duty is something very different than it is for Mill. Du, uh, for, uh, the only duty that you owe, and this is Mill just basically taking Kant and running with him, uh, in some respects to a logical extension. Uh, for, because Mill is very much teleological as well. It's all about the ends. Mm -hmm. As long as you don't harm anyone, anything goes if you wish it. That's that's utilitarianism. Uh, Kant would say, because Kant is a moral philosopher and an ethicist more than anything else, he's saying that duty stems from something, and he's not putting it into God necessarily. It's more of a, more of a uh, I would say, agreed upon uh Ethos, yeah, uh, commonly, common, commonly agreed upon way of belief. Right, a lot of, and I'm not saying he is an atheist because honestly, I'm not entirely sure whether he is or isn't. Because he, he has problems with religion, but beyond that, it's kind of hard to say. He's probably right. more. Well, so did Thomas Jefferson. I mean, yeah. you know, but we call him a deist. Right. Yeah. So I probably, if I were to try and pin Kant down, 
if he does believe, he's probably more Jeffersonian in, in that respect. Yes, uh, they were of the same so age, yeah. Yeah. Uh, of the same time period. So, yeah, so, that makes some sense. Yes. Um, they would come to the same he is very contemporary with all the founders. Yes, very much so, very much so. Um, I think with, um, even though he, he tries to say, well, you know, this is not going to be faith-based, or, you know, we're coming at it from, um, you know, almost a uh, Hippocratic Oath kind of thing, do no harm yeah, to others. Is. Yeah, uh, that is still you know, and this whole idea of an agreed upon, uh, we're just all going to agree that this is what morality is. Atheists love to take that tack, mm -hmm. but why do we all agree on that? Yeah, and see, that's where I go back to. It's more than just personal choice. It's more than just personal choice. Yeah, um, because again, you know, not to, to drag us back into the uh, pro life arguments that we had in our last episode with Kant, but uh, you know. We all agree, certainly once life begins outside the womb, that ending one of those lives is murder. The real question is, where does that life begin? Right. So even in such a vast divide between pro-lifers and pro-choicers, the concept of murder mm -hmm. is agreed upon. The question of what is murder mm -hmm. is disagreed upon. Is disagreed upon. Uh, there's actually, and this is a chilling uh, statistic, but... Uh, Reading on this issue as I do in me in recent years, uh, there's even the argument that that itself is uh, is is a problem. We shouldn't be arguing about that as well, uh, which is an argument for in their in their case infanticide, yes, and euthanasia. Uh, yes, that has become much more it's, prevalent it's like, in the argument yeah, that, that the only safeguard should be against a life that has utility. That's exactly a life yes. that doesn't have utility. Shouldn't be safeguarded. Exactly. Which that's is, why Down syndrome babies are aborted almost universally. That's right. See, that's, because they see that life as having no utility. But I, I would, I would submit that most of those people never met anybody with Down agreed. syndrome. Well, it's the same, and it's in many respects, it's the same argument. If that, if if you take that to its logical conclusion, teleology, teleology again, then we should have no nursing homes. It's very, yes. a very Klingon aspect. Is yes. you know because there ain't no Klingon nursing homes. I can pretty well assure you of that. Very much so. Yeah. Yes. So if if you take it that that way, that's what utility gets you. Yes. It, it gets to you to dehumanize anything that's outside of the productive. Well, sphere. and you notice as uh, to to paraphrase or crib a little bit from Ronald Reagan, I notice that all of those who are in effect utilitarians are the hale and hearty. Oh yeah. Those who like would, everyone who is for abortion has already been born. That's right. The, yeah, any, any, it, it's like Congress voting itself a pay raise or voting to exempt itself from the laws they make. It's the same thing here. Yes. Uh, that that the law, if truth is truth. It's good for thee, but not for me. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And I would I would give Kant this that would not be his position. Right. Mm -hmm. He was he he very much believed <clears throat> there is a moral underpinning that is both necessary. And uh, correct, you know, from yes. all aspects. Well, and that whole categorical imperative. Yeah, based uh, on it. Yeah, it, yeah, it's based on that. That that, uh, and he, now he does phrase it in such a way that uh, it's an individualistic view, because he talks about you know you shouldn't do anything that you you know wouldn't say everybody shouldn't do. You know, you know, that you, if I do this, then it should be good for everybody to do. It's that. Kind of, and, and yeah, that would definitely be within. It's his kind of turning house. the golden rule. Round yes. and coming in from the other side, and which you know that's not new. What what Kant's proposing here is not new. It's just, but the way he explains it is absolutely is. Most people haven't really <coughs> talked about it that much. Even Aquinas or Aristotle, uh, yes. they they come at it from a different perspective, and that's one of the Kant's geniuses uh, is that he's able to look at this in a very different. Yeah. Um, so I think you know you're asking. So right. So what's the point? Yeah. Right. I mean, even with uh, and I'll give him credit for evolving his thinking again because he. He moves away from a lot of that early racist sort of, you know, these people will never be like us kind of right. thing. Well, and I bet this well, that's utilitarian. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's him going from the skeptic to the reasoner. Right, right. Applying it in that particular right. So because he accepted what the common thought was, mm -hmm. but then once he started to think about it, he realized, well, that doesn't hold new water. That's yeah, correct. so yeah. you give him a lot of credit for evolving with his thought, following it out to some ends. Yeah, maybe not all of them or to the, yeah, the true end, but he, but but he, he goes farther than most. Yeah, he thought a lot of it through and moved in a better direction. Because again, by the time of perpetual peace, he's rejecting that line of reasoning. Yes. And is very much more 
you know, it, it's better that justice be done among all people than anything else continue to exist. Yes, to use a uh, uh, perhaps a Hobbesian or uh, or other term, he's almost arguing for a universal social contract. Yeah, it's, uh, that's very Lockean, but yes, that's yeah, exactly yeah, Lockean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's you're, which you're, is you're, not a bad thing. Well, you know, and I think that's the what makes him worthwhile uh, to answer your question about why you know why bother with Kant when you've got Aquinas, is that precisely because he does approach the same ideas from a different direction, and he ends up in a similar place. So therefore, if you if you broaden the ways you can get to what we would consider to be the truth, which is, let's face it, at the core, that inherent dignity of the human person, which is what he's driving at. Uh, and, and Thomas would definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, then, if you broaden the number of ways you can get to broaden the starting points, then the more likely you are to get that more people will get to that point. And if we all get to that point, and at some distant future when we are all, you know, it's the next generation future where we're all just lovey dovey and happy with one another, and we just do things to make ourselves better. Uh, granted, I think uh, Jesus is coming back way before that happens. But the more people you can get there, probably the better off all of us are. Yeah, I mean, he, so, is, yeah, he is absolutely anti-utilitarianist. And one of the things he, he formats directly, and this is one of the reasons we should absolutely think a lot of him, is the concept of dignity. He's very clear about it. Yes. There's such a thing as inherent dignity, which uh, the, the utilitarian would reject, and so many that went before would reject, because otherwise... That's, that's how he comes to that evolution against, well, racism is, is absolutely intellectually dishonest. Because if you have dignity based on humanity, for example, uh, then such treatment is impossible. And this is why I say that most thinkers today, certainly political thinkers, but you know, probably even those who are at least even armchair philosophers, uh, those who are spouting philosophies or, or ways of living, are utilitarians, even though they would say, no, no, I believe in the dignity of the human person. And the reason I say this is because often that dignity only extends to those who agree with them. That's correct. Yeah. That is no dignity at all. No. That right. is one of the most dehumanizing things sure. you can do. It is elitism. Is you are, it, I think it goes even beyond no, that. Yeah, it, it, it goes yeah. beyond that. Because it's not just the the elites in that sense. I'm all for unity as long as I'm the unity. Exactly. Bella Oxmix, yes sir, he makes an appearance once again. Yeah. I mean, it's very much in the in the social conversation today of, you know, uh, what's a radical? Well, anybody that disagrees with me. Pretty much. some kind of radical. It's like, well, you know, you might want to dial that back just a scoosh. Just a bit, yeah. So, yeah, so, that's so, very so much... Robert, Sir, are you saying that we should be able to go and hop from Aquinas to Kant to Roddenberry? Well, we certainly have. <laughs> so I guess I would yeah. say yes, we can. And, and not necessarily should, but um, again, I think they're starting point, different starting points. Although Roddenberry and Kant are probably a little close. Well, no, I would say Kant is probably closer to Aquinas than he is to Roddenberry. Because Roddenberry is just a hippy-dippy starting well, point. Well, he, he's very utilitarian. Uh, at times. At times, yes. Yeah, that's right. The secular but, humanism I mean, of him. Pardon? The secular humanism of him uh, yes. steals a lot from, from Mill. But unfortunately, Mill has polluted everything that came but, after But I mean, him. his expression of society in, in, especially the next generation, mm -hmm. less so in the original series, but that ideal that you see, uh, especially in, in uh, uh, where the, the episode where the Romulans come back in the first season of the next generation. Uh, the neutral zone. The neutral zone, thank you. Uh where the great uh, Andreas Kostelis, uh makes his first appearance, isn't it? Doesn't isn't, no, nope. sorry, that's in the third season. That's I was thinking that he was, was that one too. No, he's no, in the no, end. He does not appear. Tomahawk does not appear until until season three. Until season season three, three. Okay. the enemy. Yeah, yeah. And so, then again, but you do get to see Mark Alamo, who would play Gold Dukat. Yes, yes. That's where you're going with that. Yes, yeah, because you so, knew he came back. Yeah. So you know, you, that's where he talks about how well the 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 guy who's the capitalist. He's like, well. How do you do anything? You know, I need to get a I need to get on my lawyer. You know, you know the firm. It's, I'm sure it still exists. I got money. Yeah. And you know, Picard is dis I mean, totally disgusted. And Stewart plays it so. By perfectly, I mean plays the disgust like he really believes it in his own heart. Yeah. Uh, the, with the idea that that money is important, or that it is even can do good, much less uh, anybody should uh, aspire to have it. 
in, in any amount, whether it's obscene amounts or not. Because to him, I think, because to them, the next generation, any amount of money is obscene. Yes, because everybody now has everything they need. So it, right. they go on to the, the challenge, Mr. Offenhouse, is to improve yourself, enrich yourself. Which uh, is always the challenge. Yeah. That's the thing that really annoyed me about that. Well, yeah. That's always been well, the see, challenge. And, and this, is the, this is that very utopian uh, panacea that I've always objected to because it talks about that implies that everybody else is taken care of. So thinking of one's neighbor is no longer neither necessary. It's neither necessary yes. or, or desired. Or desired. Or, exactly. Yes. And that's, that's the ugly part that Roddenberry... I, I get, I get the, an optimistic outlook. I like that. But that... It's totally unrealistic. And well, this was kind of trying to sweep that out of the way. It never makes much sense. Now, I grant you that once you introduce the concept of replicators, once, and they become, yes. and once, become they, once they become widespread, and even the Orville talked about this because they don't have replicators. I can't remember if they call them food synthesizers, which is what Enterprise calls them, right, or something else. But they make the point in explaining it to a, uh, like a 20th century level uh, society that they encounter. Because uh, they have a similar no, uh, you know, no first contact violations. You know, if they're not prime, prime directive, yeah, prime directive. Yes. Um, is that once you have replicators, then a lot of what drives conflict goes away. That's correct because resources are no longer scarce. Exactly, resources are no longer once scarce. Once you can transmute matter, then yeah, everything, yeah, everything. Then what, nothing is valuable anymore in many it's all, ways. It's all fungible. It, exactly. That's right. I mean, it's all a NFT. <laughs> yeah, because you know, what's the point of gold when you can make it in your little replicator at home, right? Or silver or any precious metal, right? There's the the, the, the entire concept is meaningless. Which is why the fact that that uh, don't you have to have matter to start with to rearrange the matter? Well, yeah, yes. Well, 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 I mean, you know, well, like God says when he when he talks with the scientists about you know. You know, scientist says, well, you know, we're so great, we can now create life. He says, really? All right, let's have a competition. You go first. So the scientist reaches out and picks up a handful of dirt, because that's how God created man. And God says, uh-uh-uh, get your own dirt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is very subtle, but very, very, very nice dig at that. So, yeah, I mean, literally, though, dirt, rocks, I mean... Poop. I mean, come on. Yeah, they, they everything about that. I mean, is, is transmutable at that point. Um, so, what happens to society at that point? Yeah. Honestly, I think you. I, I think replicators would lead to a total collapse of society. I do too. Because there's no there's no economy necessary anymore, other than those who create the there's replicators. No, there's no effort. Well, there's no. I mean, no yeah. exertion. You're at you're at the Kantian prospect of well, I've got a doctor to prescribe my diet. And I've got yes. a book to well, think for me, folks, and I don't exert myself, this, and I don't think little, anymore. This little smartphone is just is, is replicator light. Same thing. It, Very we're, similar, we're, yeah. We're, we're, uh, it, ser- it serves all our entertainment and intellectual needs. My doctor's visits can be entirely on my phone yeah. now. That's correct. We're only uh, beginning And you can now buy a kit that does all of the measurements that your doctor does mm-hmm. in the office and is transmitted via your phone, via app, to your doctor, so that literally, I mean, it's got to be something very serious for you to have to go in. You know, COVID tests, blood work. All that. we're not to the point yet where you can, you know, prick your finger and drop a piece of uh, drop a drop of blood on a slide and have your phone analyze it, because that's a tricorder. But aren't we close to that? Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, you can attach a, a device to your to your phone, and it becomes one of those. Uh, uh, IR filters, yeah. where you can see heat escape in a room. You know, uh, contractors and builders use this all the time to see where are the air leaks. You know, so if you got a hot spot in a room that shows where all the heat's going out. Or so cold spot all of our whatever. phones are Jordy's visor. Uh, getting there, yeah. Getting there, yeah. Yes, and, and so uh, and, and people like Elizabeth Holmes take that to its logical conclusion, even though it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> That's what though, she did. It's what she, she made tried it to do. up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she made it up, yeah. but. Uh, and, and, you know, if we get to the point of the holiday, nobody's leaving home. Right. Nobody's leaving home. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's exactly right. But, nobody's getting but married. Who, but then who builds all that works for one generation and that, because they will not reproduce past that. Well, they'll reproduce, but as soon as everything breaks down, we are back in, you know, be, before medieval times because they're not even going to know how to use a forge or be a blacksmith or anything like that because at, when you advance so far, you can only know how to operate 
the most basic devices. Mm-hmm. Your knowledge is all theoretical. Your skills are all very simplistic. Yeah, I mean, we're at that kind of at that spot right now. Yes. I mean, if the power plant shuts down, how many people in this town know how to restart it? Exactly. Or, you know, want to go post-apocalyptic. If there's an EMP, that's right. Uh, you know, a solar mass ejection. You don't even talk about a nuclear war. Because, uh, you know, the, the last big uh, solar mass, coronal mass ejection, CME, that happened in the 1800s, mm-hmm. fried all the telegraph lines and all that. Yeah. If that same event were to happen today, it would probably fry all the electrical systems of whatever side of the planet got hit. And, you know, fried satellites, all that kind of stuff. Think about what would happen to society. 90% of society would be dead in the first year. Because we don't have the skills. That's what we, we and all the food is hundreds of miles away. That's right. Well, we're so far removed from the means of production. We would kill each other. The strongest would survive. Yes. And then, sooner or later, they would starve. Yeah. yeah because those who create the food themselves have been destroyed with their knowledge. Yes, my, Mad Max is very prophetic in that respect. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not prophetic yet because it hasn't happened, but I think it's very accurate in how things would play out. So what you're saying is stock up on ammunition, uh, ammunition and other uh, and other things. But yes, that's always a good good tool to have. So so those like uh, those places that sell the freeze dried food, I need to be getting into that. Yeah, well, you know, but you can't order a whole bunch from one place. You need to, to spread your orders around because you don't want the government making you know thinking that you're one of those crackpots. That's right. So that's good advice. It's always good advice. Yeah. Yeah. To keep well, the government from thinking you're a crackpot because nowadays that's important. Sadly enough. All right. Well, I'll let them think. But anyways, yes. Yeah, so I'm close to crackpot level right now. So. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, I've had a really good week. I, I spent three days working on my writing project, and then I went to the gun range, and now I'm sitting here drinking bourbon. So I, I'm feeling like um, almost as if I should immigrate and give up my citizenship just so I could move back here and get my citizenship back and celebrate it all <laughs> again. So, you know, been to the gun range, I'm drinking bourbon, I'm hanging with my friends. It's great to be an American. It is. It absolutely is. So, yes, that is why we should, uh, uh, why Kant is still important, though, is that he, he provides all those different, provides yet another approach to get to what I think is objectively true even though he might not re, uh, define it I think as objectively yeah true. i mean i think that's very interesting as, as the point of all right you don't want to start with theology start over here with reason where kant is guess what you end up in the same place yep okay sure. yeah now granted he has some some things that he accepts before you know, without even realizing you know he accepts that inherent dignity argument first arguing for the inherent dignity of the human person is probably the most difficult argument to make uh, without reference to anything else. Because you can't, you know, from my perspective, I do it because of, of, of the argument of moral theology uh, in the church. Uh, Kant doesn't, he just accepts it as a good. I'm not even sure why, other than, you know, well, to do it, bad. if you don't, bad things happen. Yeah. Which in itself is not a bad reason to accept it. I'll take that. Yeah. So, so uh, Captain, are you ready? Uh, Anything else, Francis? I mean, we, no. I think we have pummeled this expired equine all that we need to. Oh, thank you. Thank We're way you. over an hour at this point. Anyway, see, we never cannot do it. Other than that, even when we say we can't, we still always. Make yeah, it. I know. I used to, to harp on them. We need to be under an hour. We need to be under an hour. It's like, Screw it. We're never going to be under. Well, an the hour. hero's journey guys go an hour and a half. So that's true. They do. they only do once a month, but they they do. They have done sixty episodes so far, and we have done one hundred and seventy-eight now. Uh, it's almost three times as many as they have. Uh, not so, saying we're better. No. Perhaps they're more prepared than we are. Well, that's true. They do homework before. Yeah. They, they have. They do some reading, and they 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 make sure that they are structuring their comments about the films and the books based on that um, uh, hero's journey framework. Paradigm, yes. yes. Fair, paradigm. Oh, favorite word. Paradigm. Thank you, Robert. You're quite welcome. Francis? So, Francis, buddy, what's next? Well, the, next we're, we're indulging Martin next time. <clears throat> we're talking pop culture. And for some strange reason, he's decided that 1971 is an epoch, like that word, <laughs> uh, in popular culture. That, epical year. Yeah, an epical year. That's right, yeah. Very good. So, uh, he's, he is going to lead us on a journey back in time, folks, to those halcyon days. 51 years. 
That's exactly right. 1971, folks, get your bell bottoms. Actually, that might even predate bell bottoms. Uh, now, uh, get, get your hippie, hippie, hippie shake get going because uh, it's coming next episode. So be here. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.